Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And this is a super interesting project for us because, you know, these guys, the developers there, are bringing electricity to a place that has never had electricity before. They're forming their own utility, literally stringing lines to deliver electricity to their customers. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, Warriors, welcome to episode 56 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am stoked that you're back again for another week of excellent conversation. How you doing? Me? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I'm just chilling here in one of my favorite places on the planet, California, on my way up to Mendocino for the third and final Solar Pioneer Party. So a big shout out to Jeff Spees and the crew that put together the Solar Pioneer Party. If you missed it, guys, you're not going to have another chance, likely. Uh, but keep an eye out for the documentary that Jeff is putting together that be debuting this weekend at the Solar Pioneer Party. I'm stoked for it. Headed up there in a short while. I'm excited to get to spend an entire weekend with folks that were seminal in helping get the solar industry off the ground. I'm also excited to just be here in California working on this webinar series that we've been doing with Solar Edge and Solar Lead Factory. If you're unfamiliar with it, just head over to mysuncast.com forward slash webinar to learn more. We've really been getting some great feedback from the attendees. So, hey, Thanks for tuning in as well, if you're listening and you've actually been on the webinars. Really appreciate you. Hey, while you're there, you can go ahead and register to be notified of the next webinar in the series, which is number three of three. Join the mailing list and you will hear about it ahead of others and you'll be able to register. Get in there and do it. Hey, as we've discussed a couple times before, I've been expanding the scope of Suncast lately, thinking a little bit more thematically, sort of seasonality of what am I bringing to the podcast? And what are the areas that you're interested in learning more about? One of the things that has come across loud and clear is this notion of the nexus of solar plus storage. So today I'm kicking off a series on solar storage. I haven't named it, but I'm interviewing a group of folks that are veritable experts on storage, microgrids, interactivity of the transactions of energy from storage assets, onto the grid or into microgrids. And the idea here is that these seasons will be running concurrently, as you've noticed with the Founder series. I'm not running them sequentially, but there several of these are running concurrently. And eventually you'll be able to find these all in one place on mysuncast.com for quick reference. Well, today on Suncast, we have a guest who originally came to my attention by one of my Suncast listeners who actually did what I asked and clicked that little voicemail button on my website and said, hey, Nico, you really should interview Travis Simpkins. And I'm so glad that she did because I learned a lot. And now I hope you will too. Dr. Travis Simpkins is the founder and CTO of MuGrid Analytics. MuGrid Analytics are the nerds of the renewable energy world, analyzing potential and existing projects to help you make sound data-driven decisions and get the most out of renewable energy investments. Travis provides, as he calls it, techno-economic analysis of renewable energy and energy storage projects to developers, utilities, component manufacturers using their proprietary Red Cloud Energy Optimization Platform. Now, if all of that sounds to you like garbledy goop, stick around and we'll try to unpack it in today's episode because it kind of did to me too. We also get into travel hacking, mountain climbing, and all new questions in the Hot or Hype segment of Suncast. So this is a fun episode. I really enjoyed it. 
And hey, of course, as I mentioned, if you have someone or something that you think should show up on Suncast, a theme, a season, a person, or yourself, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or pop over to the website and leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. That website, again, is mysuncast.com, and my email is nico at mysuncast. Hey, this episode is brought to you in partnership with soulrates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. We all know this is one of the hardest things in helping get commercial deals across the finish line. So if you're out there and you got projects over 100000 in value and you'd like to see how to use the Soul Rates platform to quickly and easily deliver a proposal that converts your prospect into a customer, head over to mysuncast.com forward slash Soul Rates, S-O-L-R-A-T-E-S, and click on the Request an Invitation button. All right. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. I hope that you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast as much as I did with Dr. Travis Simpkins. I'm super excited today on Suncast to welcome Dr. Travis Simpkins. He's the secret weapon behind the design, modeling, and economic optimization of energy storage and microgrid projects for some of today's most cutting-edge developers and projects. His deep experience, not just from NREL, but world-class engineering institutions like MIT and Case Western, and a multitude of published papers with IEEE and others might just fool you into believing he's simply an energy nerd. But he's also one of the most interesting and well-traveled people I've had the pleasure of meeting. And today on Suncast, I hope that we get to see both sides of his fascinating work. Hey, Dr. T, thanks for taking time away from your busy schedule to be on Suncast today. Thanks a lot, Nico. It's a pleasure to be here and join you, and I'm really looking forward to having a nice conversation with you about some of the stuff we're doing. Likewise, likewise. Well, Travis, you've been exposed to a lot of different things. Uh, I mean, just looking over your uh, academic history from kind of what's published 2005 to present, uh, it covers the gamut from transportation and papers that I can't even read to what you're doing modern day with, uh, with energy storage and the ener- energy grid. Could you tell me a bit about your first foray into renewables and solar power and how you knew that that's where you wanted to focus your career? Yeah, it's pretty interesting, actually. I was trained as a circuit designer. Back in the day, I did integrated circuit chips for computers and other electronics. You know, it was about uh, oh, 2010. The, uh, the economy had just happened, and, and uh, the startup that I was at, you know, kind of, uh, uh, well, it didn't, didn't end so well. And I was looking around at what I should do next. And it just so happened that... Uh, the girl that I had been dating and was engaged to at that time was living in Colorado, so it was a pretty big jump from from Boston out to uh, out to here, and and I needed something to do. It was right when the ARA Act was uh, taking place, and so National Renewable Energy Lab was here, and they were hiring, and I said, well, hey, you know, it's research. I can do research. It's in energy. I'm not really an energy guy, but you know, I've done you know, I've done chips. There's energy on chips, and. And so I took a shot and applied, and, and uh, that's where I ended up. And it was interesting because I didn't necessarily expect to stay there all that long, but it turned out I was there for seven years. So it was a really fascinating time to see what solar had done, you know, from 2010 to about 2016. You know, I got there when I would describe solar as mostly, you know, still a lot of science projects out there. And, of course, right. by the time that I left, it had really turned into a business. It had come into its own. And just to see that transition over time. You know, I think when I got there that, you know, panels were somewhere around $7 a watt. And by the time I left, it was, you know, in the twos. And so you can just see that trajectory and, it, you know, just where that went. That is fascinating. And I'm sure you saw a lot of growth, especially with your insight into what the Department of Defense and NREL were working on, uh, which leads us into what you're currently doing. Your current company is called MuGrid. Can you explain MuGrid and what problem you're trying to solve? So at MuGrid, we're really focused on the techno-economic modeling and optimization of microgrids, renewable energy, and energy storage. And so we really want to be the quants of this space, guys that can really model systems to a very high degree, build bankable pro formas, help design the business case, figure out what optimal sizing and dispatching of these systems looks like. And so we're really bring a math background to this, that it's, you know, we're solving some very complex 
systems of equations that allow us to provide very unique and innovative results that, you know, help a lot of people figure out, you know, how they should build these systems and how they should operate these systems more effectively. Now, you used a term I haven't heard before, techno-economic. Can you unpack that? So I use techno-economic to, you know, there's two parts to it, of course. It comes from technical and economic. And maybe this is, you know, part of me and my background is that I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so for me to say economic optimization just feels a little bit funny, even though a lot of what we're doing, you know, probably over 50%, maybe 75% of my day is spent on finance and economics. But really what it means is, is that we're starting from the technical roots of a technology. We're modeling technologies based on how they can operate. We're not down building physics-based models. You know, these are more system-level models of how a particular technology, a box can work. What can you do with it? And so we have constraints around what you can do, say, with a battery. How fast can you charge it? You know, what's its limitations on state of charge and things like that? And so once you write those set of rules, then you can apply that to how it should interact with its rate tariffs, for example. And so having that combination there of the technical side of what you can do with a technology, and then it's really the finances that drive what you should want to do with it. And so that's what we call techno-economic analysis. I love the name of your company, MuGrid. Of course, it uh, represents the Greek letter and the SI unit for micro and being microgrid. How often does that get confused? Do people get it initially? Well, I'm very happy that you got it right, Nico. That's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we thought we were clever. And it turns out that maybe we're, uh, um, you know, it shows, if nothing more, it shows that we're some real nerds here. Certainly. That's fine. We love to wear that hat. You know, we're happy to be the, uh, we want to be the guys that uh, you can turn to when you really want to know how a technology works and how you're going to be able to fit it into your plan. And so, you know, we've certainly had some people so far that, uh, you know, that, that aren't sure if they should pronounce the M-U um, if it should be moo, like the cows, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's MuGrid. And once you figure it out what it is, you know, I think it makes, you know, I hope it makes sense. For sure. Well, let's actually talk about the namesake of your company, MicroGrid. Seems like you have now dedicated the better part of the last seven years to the pursuit of what at one time was as you, it basically was what you say solar was in 2010, right? It's a niche science project. It still continues to be that in many parts of uh, the United States, although it's developing in the world. How would you define microgrid, certainly as it pertains to what you're working on and how your customers view the integration of it? And I'd also like you to follow that with what are some of the most common misconceptions around microgrids that you constantly are having to uh, address or correct? Microgrids today are a bit of a nebulous term, uh, for sure. And so it's the way that we think about a microgrid is a collection of, of assets. And so these could both be generation assets and load management assets that you have that are grid connected most of the time, but you can island them and operate them independently of the grid. And so you may have you may have solar, you may have CHP, you could have wind, you could have batteries. Couple that with dispatchable loads that you have on site, some energy storage, a microgrid controller. That collection of assets is a microgrid, but the defining characteristic of it is that you can island that. And so when the grid goes down, you can throw a switch and you can continue to operate your system independently. And so that's really what the core of, uh, you know, how we define a microgrid. Absolutely. I love it. The defining characteristic is that you can island it and operate independent of the grid, at least for a given period of time. One of the things that I've noticed recently, certainly with the latest natural disasters, is the awareness that seems to be arising uh, or resurfacing within our industry that when we talk about specifically solar plus storage, many of the systems currently addressing solar plus storage on the market aren't islanding. They don't provide a microgrid, as it were, for homes or businesses. They simply are devices that allow for some level of dispatchability of energy or or time shifting of energy usage, etc. I want to talk about resiliency, because I feel like that's one of the areas that with regard to microgrids addresses the underlying issues we see with the deployment of storage in, in terms of solar plus storage. But, but first, can you tell me a bit about a story that I read about Mount Sneffels? So you're really digging deep here, uh, Nico. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
So I've been a, uh, a bit of a mountaineer um, in the past, uh, you know, climbing mountains, not uh, not super technical stuff, but, uh, you know, class th- class three, class four, uh, you know, type uh, terrain. Um, I've been doing that probably for, you know, coming to Colorado for, I don't know, you know, 15 years now. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of mountains out here, some, uh, you know, 50, about 54, uh, 14,000 foot peaks. and mm-hmm. And a buddy and I, one of my one of my best friends, who happens to be a mountaineering partner, about three years ago, just a little over three years ago, we're out uh, climbing Mount Sneffels. We had a big weekend planned. It was supposed to be uh, four peaks for us, and uh, it would be my uh, Sneffels was going to be my forty second fourteener out of fifty four. Wow. I had a little mishap that day. Um, <laughs> you know, we'd gone up through most of the hard part. We were we were off route, but that's okay. We were on a route that we didn't plan for that day. It was a little bit harder, but we had done all the hard stuff. We were pretty much up on the ridge, and I missed a step and took a tumble. And, oh my gosh, your life can change in the blink of an eye. So that was in the evening. Turns out that, uh, you know, I tumbled about uh, tumbled down the side of a mountain for probably about 50 feet oh. and uh, ended up there, uh, came to rest, fortunately. My uh, buddy came down. We assessed the situation. There was no chance in hell that I was walking out of there. Uh-huh. But and, think, um, fingers wiggled, toes wiggled. That is exactly what you do. <laughs> is the first thing I did is I, I landed face down. So I was never airborne. I was tumbling down a slope that was, was 35 degrees. Ooh. And so, um, you know, kind of rolling, tumbling. And, you know, I came to rest and I looked down, wiggled my fingers. Well, that's good. I wiggled my, I, you know, I wiggled my toes. And I'm like, oh, I can feel those. And about then I look down at my leg and it's just pointing the wrong way. And I'm just, oh, that's not good. And so, you know, probably about a minute later, my buddy showed up and we assessed the situation. And, you know, he spent a couple of minutes there with me. But, you know, we were like, well, you got to go for help, man. And so, uh, you know, it's we're sitting at we were at 13,900. So 13,900 feet just below the summit. (laughs) Agonizing. And uh, he went up back up to the, took our cell phones. Um, you know, really, one of the reasons I'm sitting here talking to you today, Nico, is, the, uh, is, is technology. And uh, it was amazing. He was able to take our cell phones back up to the ridge and, and make a call to Uray Mountain Search and Rescue. Um, he called 911, and then they routed him over to Uray Mountain Search and Rescue. And they dispatched. Um, took him six hours to uh, get up there. Um, so spent six hours... The first six hours with my uh, buddy Steve, uh, basically holding me to the side of the mountains because every everything up there was loose, and yeah. so we spent six hours there, sun setting. You know, have no idea what's coming next. And they got there at about eleven thirty, got me stabilized. Still unclear how I'm getting out of there. And uh, it turns out that they got me on a litter. That was about two a.m. That they anchored to the side of the mountain. Their team of about fifteen. Most of them were bu- spent building that uh, uh, stabilizing. You know, a, uh, a litter for the night. About nine a.m. the next morning, they got the uh, um, our uh, uh, Colorado Army National Guard has their uh, high altitude training center here, and for all of the Army, for that mm. matter. And they're some of the best pilots in the world. And so they dispatched a Blackhawk, and I. Uh, Got to uh, fly off the mountain in a Blackhawk, which was, uh, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy the ride, but mostly I enjoyed getting off that mountain. <laughs> was that your first time in a Blackhawk? Oh, it absolutely was. And if I'm fortunate, it'll be the last as well. What else it tells me about your character is this this notion of resiliency. I think it takes a lot of character, not just to want to go up 14,000 uh, feet, but also to uh, remain calm, have, be, have presence and, and, and survive a fall like that. I'm not sure that it directly relates, but I just love the correlation is these are not expected situations, right? And, you know, as it relates to our energy grid, it's not always an expected situation that the energy grid is going to fail. And so if you haven't designed in resiliency in the way that you have with your training and your cognitive response for the fall, then you're going to have a critical failure. I'd love to hear more about your notion of resiliency as it relates to our energy grid and the systems that define it. Resiliency is a, is a huge topic today. You know, it's really timely that we're, uh, that, we're, that we're getting a chance to talk about it because, you know, here we sit, you know, the United States has hit, had three hurricanes hit back to back to back, which is, you know, sort of unprecedented. And of course, there's other, you know, there's other disasters going on. You know, there's, we've got wildfires. There was, you know, there, the crazy thing was there was a tropical storm down in, in Baja, Mexico that, that was, 
it was sort of crazy. And we didn't even talk about it because of all of our own problems here at home. And so, right. you know, just seeing what, uh, you know, where, where the grid is, you know, I think we sit here today and, you know, it was, it was a short while after the hurricane that, you know, even a week later, like 5% of Puerto Rico had power. And, you know, that's just, you know, we can do better than this, um, you know, with some resiliency. And so, you know, you can kind of get an idea of what the lack of resiliency is, you know, is when these things happen. And so hmm. being able to build a resilient grid is one that can is hardened and can withstand more of these events. You know, resiliency is really it's a statistical thing. And that's what I really like to tell people is that, you know, you have to take a stochastic mindset of how to think about these problems. And so you're not going to be able to design a grid that is able to withstand everything, everything you could throw at it. But what you'd like is to have a grid that doesn't all collapse at, you know, the first, you know, at, at one of these big is one of these big storms. And so part right. of what that means is, you know, maybe being able to island, being able to sectionalize it, you know, having microgrids out there such that, you know, if one part of your grid goes down, you can separate that, you can disconnect that, and you can operate the other. So you can maintain maybe some of your critical infrastructure that, you know, having backup power to your first responders. You know, obviously, I, you know, they're very near and dear to my heart, those people, you know, I, I personally, you know, I have personal relationships with them now and I see their plight. And one of the ways that you can make them effective is by giving them power. You know, electricity yeah. can solve is amazing in the problems that it can solve. You know, it enables all of our communications. And so being able to have those resources available and being able to make your grid where you have some redundancy, some N plus one, N plus two, to be able to take care of this. And, you know, it's not going to all happen overnight. You know, let's not kid ourselves. But we can work towards that. And, you know, it's really happening. That's the upside of this, is that I really think people are starting to notice this now and starting to say, yeah, you know, we want this. We want to figure out mm. how to be able to make this better. What are the levers? What are the fundamental components that you consider critical resources to provide resiliency that perhaps aren't being missed or looked over in today's iteration of solar plus storage? So we should probably just back up a second and talk about what re resiliency has meant in the past. And so microgrids, they're not fundamentally a new concept. Microgrids have existed, you know, in some ways since the dawn of electricity. You know, when Edison mm. wired up his first grid, it was a microgrid because there was no other grid anywhere else, right? You know, when, that's right. When he electrifies New York City, that's a microgrid. And so you can say that electricity, our grid started as a microgrid. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't kid ourselves that we've invented something new here. We're just putting a new spin on it. And so even after, you know, that time, you know, say for the last 30, 40, 50 years, microgrids have, there's been backup power systems that have diesel generators. So that's nothing new either. You know, there's been diesel generators that, that, get, that people have used and they have automated transfer switches so that they can isolate their grid and they can keep this up. But what's hmm. new here is, is bringing in renewables to this. And so the problem that you had with a, say, a diesel-backed microgrid is you're only as good as your fuel supply. And so you have fuel tanks on site, of course, but, you know, even there's, you can't have unlimited fuel. And so at some point, you're either going to need to have a truck bring in more fuel or you're going to run out. And so the right. question then is, is a balance. Well, how much resiliency do you want? And so you'll hear terms kicked around. Oh, I have three days of fuel on site. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you have three days during February when, you know, maybe your loads are kind of low or three days, you know, in July in Southern California? You know, it's a much hmm. different situation. And so what we're doing now is saying in most of these microgrids, we're not talking about getting rid of the diesels. You know, they're already they're they're an asset that's sitting there. We're saying, what if we compare them with solar and storage and maybe some other assets, maybe some load control such that right. now we have a source of fuel that doesn't need a truck roll. The sun shines every day, most in many locations, maybe not all, but most. And so you can take what was a, I'll call a gas guzzling diesel generator, and you can turn it into a fuel sipping machine that can run for a much longer period of time on the same amount of fuel. And that's being enabled by PV and batteries that you can put on site. We could show that dispatch strategy, show that math of, you know, how your diesel is going to operate differently along the way. 
I think that's fascinating. One of the things that I feel a lot of folks, myself included at times, don't really get the detail around, especially with where it, where it comes into uh, not just resiliency, but adding storage as a component to uh, grid supply, is this notion of power versus energy. Could you help unpack a bit around the storage side of business, the difference between power and energy and how that plays out in the real world of storage? That's a really good point, is the difference between power and energy as it comes to particularly energy storage. And I think that what we're seeing here is that we have a lot of, you know, PV has been, you know, we're on a great trajectory with PV. And so I think that a lot of developers, a lot of investors, a lot of property owners have wrapped their heads around PV. And as you know, PV is always sized, it's always talked about in its power rating. You've got your nameplate rating of PV that's in kilowatts or megawatts. And so people try to apply that to storage. But in reality, you care about how long you can supply that power for. And so having a high power rating on your battery depends, you know, it, it, it can be fine depending on the application. But hmm. if you wanted to do resiliency, you want to be able to provide that power for a period of time. And so let's say that you have a, you know, let's just arbitrarily pick a 100 kilowatt battery. So that means that that battery can supply 100 kilowatts of peak power. So that's the power that you're using instantaneously. Say you are running a whole bunch of hair dryers. That, that's now, you can now run, I guess you could say you could run about 100 of those at one time. But what I haven't told you is how long you can run them for. Precisely. Is if you have a 100 kilowatt battery, now we need to talk about how much capacity is behind that. And so, you know, a common configuration might be 100 kilowatts, 200 kilowatt hours. So now you can see that there's a two to one ratio there between the energy and the power. So you've got 200 kilowatts hours of energy available. And that means that you're able to run those 100 hair dryers for two hours. Essentially, you have a two hour battery sitting there. And so you can have different power to energy ratios depending on your application. And so sometimes, you know, the guys that are doing, you know, that are doing exclusively frequency regulation, they love high power batteries. Hmm. They can pump out power very quickly and they don't need to do it for very long. So it's not uncommon to see a higher power rating than energy rating on that battery. You know, maybe they have 15 minutes. It's a 15 minute battery. Well, then you flip over and you start looking at the guys that are doing peak shaving. Um, maybe they want to look at resiliency. Now you start to want to have a two or four hour battery. Yeah. And so really your selection of that, can, of that battery is very dependent on what you want to do with it. And that's one of the big things that, that people have trouble understanding is just historically where we've been with PV. We never needed to talk about the energy rating because there was no energy involved. Yeah. It was just what is my peak power? And, you know, the same thing is sort of true at the power plants. You know, you can think about, you know, like a coal power plant or, you know, I guess that we should probably not talk about coal power plant. But, you know, let's talk about, uh, but we'll, let's talk about it anyway, because, you know, of course, a lot of this country still has coal power plants. Yep. So you'll talk about, you know, maybe this is a hundred megawatt coal power plant. We haven't talked about what the energy of that plant is. And because it's really the th way it's specced is how much power it can deliver at any one time. But of course, there is an energy capacity there, but your energy capacity is the pile of coal that's on site. Yeah. How much coal did you have available to burn through this thing before you were going to run out? Well, that's the energy that was within the fence at that facility. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And you said something just a minute ago that maybe I misunderstood, but you said with PV systems, we typically think about power and not energy. But did you mean the other way around? We typically think of energy in kilowatt hours and not power in terms of its not its peak rating. No, with PV, we talk about the uh, we talk about the power rating, the nameplate capacity of it. We might be mixing up whether we're we, we, we talk about capacity. Capacity is a rough word to use. Yeah. But in PV, you're designing the system to be you know 100 kilowatts. That means that it can produce you know if the sun is pointing directly at it that it's going to come close to 100 kilowatts. But that when the sun goes down, of course, you don't get 100 kilowatts. And so it's, 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 the TV systems are specced in terms of how much power they can produce. And then if you want to know how, many, how much energy they produce, you need to multiply that by a period of time. And so if, if you had the sun pointing at a 100 kilowatt array for one hour, 
and maybe it's at solar noon, so maybe it's producing at 70 or 80% of rated. So you would have 70% say times 100 kilowatts, so you've got 70 kilowatts, and you do that for one hour, you would make 70 kilowatt hours of electricity that you could then you know, use to supply on site, or you could charge your battery with that. Well, Dr. T, you are in fact uh, quite the academic and the energy nerd. I wanna throw a few things at you in a segment I like to call hot or hype. And we're gonna start, basically we'll look at specific markets or topics. Spend 30, 60 seconds telling me whether you think it is a hot market or whether it's all hype and why. And so we'll start with something very near and dear to your heart, solar plus storage, hot or hype? I think it's very hot. I think there's a, there's a lot of opportunity in this space. The trajectory that we've seen on storage costs are making a lot, of pro- a lot more projects that are economically viable now. Um, it's been said that storage is at where PV was 10 years ago. And so just think about that for a moment. Think about how many PV systems you saw 10 years ago compared to today. Yeah. And now think about if storage should follow that same cost trajectory. Think about how many storage systems you're going to see 10 years from now. Couldn't agree more. And I see a lot of my friends, executives in the industry transitioning their careers over to storage. I, I think that either they're deadly wrong or uh, and it's hype uh, or we're going to see a lot, a lot of, uh, of storage integration. Well, along the lines of that, is it hot or hype microgrids as a serious, significant part of our future energy grids? I mean, we're probably biased here, but we think it's it's we think that that's the future. Yeah, that that's um, you know, that you're going to see microgrids. In fact, they're going to be so commonplace that we're probably not even going to talk about them. Mm, yeah, it, it won't be this uh, this bespoke uh, idea of how do we do it. Yeah, I hear you. Well, what about the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry? Well, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, I think the future is with electric vehicles. I think that we've realized that internal combustion engines as a platform for transportation, you know, it got us the first hundred years, mm. but it's, you know, it's not the future. And that, you know, we look at what we see we can do when we run on an electronics based platform instead of a combustion based platform. And so if you take that as a if you accept that, then this is the logical transition is, is that there has to be an integration of renewables and transportation, because look at the load we're going to put on the grid. And so there's a lot of dominoes that follow one after another here. And so, you know, this is a this is a real it's a real problem. I think it really is where we're headed. It's just there's a lot of things that are going to come into play along the way, some of which we probably haven't even thought about yet. You know, you probably have better insight into this than others. And I'm throwing this in as a first time uh, entrant to hot or hype. How about transactive energy? We think that it's still early. Um, I want to say that it's you know, it's going to be hot. It's something that Mm -hmm. you've got to be looking at that's, you know, five, 10 years down the road yet. But you're going to see this. It's hot. The whole concept of our the future of our utility grid is changing. And as more and more microgrids get deployed, more and more dispatchable technologies, you're going to see this happen. You know, there's tons of opportunity in this space. In fact, it's barely defined yet. I would agree with you. And for those of you who don't know what transactive energy is, I suggest you just do a quick Google search and uh, learn more about how we are, in fact, going to be trading megawatts instead of megawatts in the, in the not-too-distant future. Well, something I think is uh, also on the, on the forefront, uh, it's evidently uh, the, next, uh, it's the next bubble and how it relates to energy. I'd love your insight. So hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. Blockchain is really interesting. You know, it ties to our, uh, you know, our quick cut discussion there on transactive energy that theoretically blockchain is going is the underlying technology or uh, the, the platform that could enable this. I'm skeptical of this. You know, to me, you know, maybe you know, that there's there's, you know, a friend put it to me this way. If there's a easier way to do something than blockchain, you should do it that way instead. <laughs> and I, I want to believe that there's going to be easier ways to do this. And so I think that blockchain is a lot of hype right now. That blockchain seems to be, you know, had, you know, the, there's applications into all sorts of industries. And I don't doubt that blockchain is going to be important, but I'm not I'm just not sure that it is the uh, the single critical driver of our uh, future electrical grid. Can you help me understand what you see as the primary hurdles to growth and scale for solar plus, in particular, solar plus storage in the, in the U.S. market? And then if you want to expand beyond that to other markets that you're looking at, that's fine as well. A lot of the issues around it right now are in terms of uh, education and understanding what it can do for you. And so I think that the industry and certainly many, many uh, of your listeners are very dialed in on how solar works 
and how to sell that to their customers. And so the same thing needs to happen in the storage space is that it's, yeah. you know, for, for many of the reasons that we've discussed is that there's, you know, there's challenges in terms of, of a paradigm shift in how you think about it. And so, so that needs to happen. And, and we work on that, you know, every day of helping our clients uh, understand what storage is going to do for them. You know, there's some other hurdles, you know, things like the whole net metering thing is, you know, is still evolving. That net metering was, you know, it was a great program, you know, for solar that it really, you know, helped drive the proliferation of solar. But net metering is actually, it's an it's a in, impediment to storage. Um, I know that'll probably ruffle some feathers out there, but, you know, when you can use mm-hmm. the grid as your, as one giant battery, you don't need to put in your own. And so, you know, it depends on what your, you know, what your view of the future is. And so I think that a lot of that's still going to get ironed out. You know, you've seen that Nevada is reshaping their net metering laws. Um, you know, other places are as well. And, and I think that, the, you know, it's certainly the final chapter on net metering has not yet been written. And finally, I would throw in here is understanding the value streams. And so right now there's a lot of, um, you know, of storage that's going in for behind the meter purposes for utility bill reduction. And that is a very straight, I, I should say it's a, it's a very quantifiable measure. It's not always straightforward, but it's quantifiable. The other side that we've been talking about here is, is the resiliency aspect. Putting a value on resiliency is really, really difficult. But once you can put that in there, that's how you can start to pencil out these projects and make them work economically, is if you can put some value on that aspect of your microgrid. Well, moving along, what questions should more solar companies be asking as they ponder this integration of storage as a part of their business? My suggestion to, uh, to the guys that are, that are doing solar today, primarily doing solar and wanting to start looking at storage, is to start thinking today about how to have those discussions, how to have those conversations with your clients. Is that what we see is that there's you know a lot of the solar guys that have traditionally just done solar are starting slowly to get those questions asked of them. And like anything, you don't want to be caught flat-footed. You know, you want to be able to come in there confidently when a customer asks and say, Yeah, this is what you can do. And you know, be honest. You know, understand that storage doesn't make sense everywhere. You know, you need to have the right uh, tariff structures in place, you need to have the right load profile. You need to have the right incentives. And so, you know, there's a lot of customers coming right now that are saying, hey, we heard about storage. We want to do this. And you should certainly explore it with them. But, you know, manage those expectations and, you know, or be ready to manage them. You know, be ready to have a have a good conversation about what the value streams look like in this space and, and where it's headed. Hey, I want to move to a section I call lessons learned. You know, one of the things I love about your bio, if you will, is that you are an elite traveler. Certainly, a lot of us travel for work, uh, but as much as I travel, I've never really tried to come up with travel hacks and become uh, an, an elite traveler uh, using uh, points and things like that. And I just noticed that, you know, even in your writing, you're writing about this kind, these kinds of things. Any, I wonder, are there any travel hacks or pro tips you think Suncast audience would benefit from? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a really, um, you know, it's probably my you know, the thing I do the most um, is and enjoy is, you know, we've done a lot of international travel over the last five or 10 years. And, you know, it's, we fly about a hundred thousand miles a year for a combination of business and pleasure. And, and I say that as my wife and I, I like to travel with people. Um, I think it uh, you know, makes a big, mm. the, the, the greater experience, um, at least for me right now, where I'm at in my life. Um, the way that we do that is the, the, the misconception is, is it takes a lot of money to travel and it really doesn't. We live in an amazing times right now in terms of, you know, where airfares are. And so if you watch the deals out there, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous to think that you can fly from the U.S. to Europe for under 300 bucks. Head to Asia for, right. you know, for sim- similar costs. You know, 10 years ago, that was unheard of. And so, you know, we really I just encourage people to take advantage of it. Now, in terms of the tips and the hacks, yeah, I do some, you know, I, I'm kind of plugged into some communities like many of us are. And, you know, we book a lot of mistake fares. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, airlines, you know, we're kind of we're, we're data people around here. And so, uh, um, you know, airlines, if you understand how they file fares, they occasionally make mistakes. <laughs> you know, they'll leave a zero off, for example, of a ticket. And so, you know, we book a lot of, um, you know, of super discounted um, fares that happen. And really the key to doing that is, first of all, you got to know about it. So there's some blogs you can read and you can Google for that. Um, but the, it's also a mentality of book first, ask questions later. 
And so if you find something that you know mm. is just not going to last, or even some of the blogs tell you, this isn't going to last. You know, either this is a flash sale or it's an outright mistake. Just book it. Book it. You've got, if you're booking on a U.S. website, yeah. you've got 24 hours to cancel right there. And so book it and figure it out, you know, six hours later, you know, if you're going to be able to take the trip or not. Do you have one thing in your travel kit now that you have sworn I'll never leave home without this again? Okay, the simplest thing, the simplest thing. You asked me a couple of questions, you know, when we were talking about this earlier, Nico, uh, that, um, you know, it, the, the, the simplest thing here the, that that's anyone can carry is go to the hardware, go to the grocery store. Anybody has these things and buy a three outlet splitter that you can plug into the wall. That will save your mm. life. All of us have multiple electronics, right? How many electronics are you carrying in your bag? You've probably got, you know, at least two, three that, that you want. You get to the airport and you're looking around trying to find a plug. Well, probably there's, right. there aren't very many of them and they're all in use. The simplest thing you can carry is a little splitter. There's no technology in this. All it does, yeah. there's no technology. There's no active circuits. It's just some wiring that allows you to plug three things into one outlet. You know, it costs about two or three bucks and it'll save your it'll save your life someday. I think that would probably qualify as the best under hundred dollars you've spent. But I'm wondering, is there something uh, in the category of under hundred dollars that, that you would say is the best money you ever spent as a, on a travel related item? The best one hundred dollars that you can spend in travel, in my opinion, if you are U.S. based and you travel internationally, is get a global entry membership. It costs a hundred bucks. It's good for five years. And what this is going to do is it lets you skip the line at immigration. And so yeah. you go up to a kiosk and you swipe your fingerprints, swipe your passport, and you're more or less good to go. I mean, it's the, it is, it's the best thing that's happened in travel, in my opinion, in this space. And so and it, you also, you know, simultaneously you get TSA pre. Even if you don't travel international that much, you've got this taken care of. And so and it costs $100, so it fits perfectly with your question. Um, but even Love it, that, $20. I'm going to tell you that you shouldn't even spend $100 for it. You can get a variety of of the premium credit cards that include one application with it. And so, yeah, you know, global entry is, you know, you could put it in your hotter hype for travel. And it is definitely it is uh, it is definitely worth the hype. Let's talk about failure. What failure has most affected or influenced your career or life to this point? It's interesting to look back. You know, I've been I've had enough trips around the sun at this point that you know, I can start to look back on my life and, and see the different forks in the road. And that's really what's interesting is to say, well, gee, you know, what if I would have done this? And, you know, you make a series of micro decisions every, every day and they influence your life. But you'll look back and you'll say, you know, that every, you know, I don't know, once a decade, once every five years, you did something that puts you on a completely different trajectory. And you didn't realize it at the time. All you did was, you know, you probably thought, well, you know, I got to decide here and, and choose. And for me, that really happened in 2009. The company I was at was Optron Systems. And it was my advisors, my PhD advisors company. Um, you know, we were a tech incubator slash startup, you know, doing really cool stuff, not having a great market, but just really, you know, really about the science. And um, you know, so the nature of that is, is, you know, if you don't have a great market for your products, <laughs> you know, you're reliant on trying to raise funding. And, and so you learn a lot through there, but you don't necessarily, you know, have a raging success. Well, you know, about 2009 comes, you know, 2008, 2009, and, you know, the economy happens and, you know, we're, our funding sources are drying up. You know, I needed to figure out what I was going to do. And so that's really the point that I went and, you know, I was, I was engaged to this girl living in Colorado. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have a life transition here. And, you know, she was wanting to either me to come to Colorado or her come to Boston. And we looked at it and said, well, you know, this is, you know, this is what's, um, you know, what's going to be best. And, and I didn't want to leave my company, you know, back to, you know, back to the failure here. I'm getting there, Nico, I promise, is that, uh, you know, I didn't want to leave this company because, you know, when you start something, you want to see where it goes, right? You're like, eh, we're not having raging success, but this is cool stuff. And if somebody buys in, you know, we might have something here. Mm. Well, 2009 comes along and it's pretty clear that you know, we're not a raging success. And so, you know, really that, you know, that failure in, you know, I was designing chips for spatial light modulators. It was that failure that sort of set me free because I needed to figure out what I was going to do next. And until that failure happened, if we would have continued to limp along writing proposals, getting grant money, getting contracts from that were, you know, to develop a specific technology, 
I was going to stay on that trajectory. And it took the realization that it was almost like ripping the Band-Aid off. That, okay, you know, we're out of funding. I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. And that's really where I made the transition to, uh, to energy and headed to NREL. And, you know, here we are today. Fantastic. Well, along those lines, what's got you most excited right now for renewables growth globally? What's next? At this point, you know, I really, you know, I tell people that the ball is rolling. You know, there's some people out there that are concerned and, you know, that, you know, where we're at with the current administration and, you know, maybe the focus isn't on renewables and, you know, is all this, you know, is all this momentum we've got, is it going to dissipate? And I don't think so. I really don't. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish in this space, as you could probably tell by now. And, you know, the, the, what we're seeing is that, you know, businesses are doing this as an investment. You know, it's no longer it's no longer a niche project out there. You know, we've got the bean counters involved, and that's not a bad thing. The bean counters are seeing this as, you know, okay, what's my ROI? You know, what tell me what my RR is. I'm gonna evaluate this project right up against everything else. And they pencil out. And so by because we're there, you know, we're gonna see this 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 expansion continue. And so in particular, what I'm excited about is 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 the worldwide opportunities. You know, we have a project right now and that is we've been asked to help figure out what the optimal sizing is for storage to be able to be paired with a solar power plant um, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. And this is a super interesting project for us because, you know, these guys, the developers there are bringing electricity to a place that has never had electricity before. They're forming their own utility, literally stringing lines to deliver electricity to their customers. And wow. so they're building a sizable microgrid. It's basically like we talked about with Edison, you know, the bringing electricity to New York City, that you're bringing electricity to a market that never had it. And so, you know, for us to have an opportunity to, to help with that, and if we can, you know, our role is if we can optimally size and get the dispatching right of this system, it brings down financing costs. It brings down the costs, the risk of this project, which makes it easier to do. And so really, that's what we gets us excited about every day is seeing projects just like this that are bringing electricity into places that never had it, bringing clean, reliable power into places that might be doing, you know, burning fossil fuels today and, you know, really being able to make that impact. And it's going on worldwide. It's easy for us to think about it from a North American perspective. But the interest in this is just phenomenal all over the world. Well, Travis, yeah, it was more than a minute, but I certainly appreciate the insight and it got me thinking, how will the future of energy resemble today's internet companies or how is microgrid similar to cloud computing? Perhaps that's a question that we'll start asking more and probing deeper, more deeper into that topic. Well, thank you for that interesting, not only look back in time, but certainly concept around how we can look outside of the energy industry for analogs to what might the future look like for this industry. As an academic, you're clearly a reader. I expect that you probably tear through uh, a few books uh, a, a, a week, a month, a year, and that you uh, have your go-to resources for ways that you stay sharp about the industry. So as we move into a section I call Learning, Leadership, and Legacy, I'd like to start by asking what book would you gift to yourself as a recent college graduate? I think probably the book that uh, you know may have the biggest impact on, you know, on my career and really, and even, you know, in some ways on, on life is, is less, it's, it's not a technical book, you know, it's uh, you know, it, but it, what I've learned over the time is that it's really about those, those interpersonal relationships. Mm. And I was fortunate to, you know, in my twenties that, uh, you know, to be given the book, uh, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Yeah. And it's really crazy that you've got a book that's written in the thirties and, you know, it's still applicable today. Well, Travis, as we wrap up here, where can people find you? How can they connect with you? You're always in a new city. So what's the best way for folks to tap into Travis Simpkins? Well, you can check out our uh, website. We're at uh, MewGrid.com. Um, we're on Twitter at MewGrid Analytics. Um, you can certainly email me, Travis at MewGrid.com. Um, and we'd certainly be, um, you know, happy to talk to you about whatever uh, projects you've got going and, you know, see how we can help, help make it a possibility. Very cool. And just a reminder for listeners, that's M-U, just like the Greek uh, letter, or, or as I mentioned, the S-I abbreviation. 
So Mu Grid Analytics, and you guys are uh, involved in lots of different integration projects. Well, Travis, is, if you had one ask of the Suncast audience, what would that be? How can we help? Yeah, we've um, you know we 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 love to get involved in projects, and so you know if there's a project out there that um, you know is particularly uh, you know challenging, um, you know interesting. You know, typically, you know, a lot of what we see right now is the uh, is a client wants to look at storage. They want to look at some dispatchable technology. They want to integrate multi assets into their their microgrid, and you know that's really you know sort of where the vanguard is is being able to figure out what that sizing is and build the business case, and that's where we can help. Um, you know, we'd be happy to uh, talk about it and uh, you know see what makes sense. Very good. Well, let's end today, Travis, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? We're really excited about the microgrid space. You know, obviously it's, you know, we're so excited about it. We put it as part of the name of our company. It's going to be here in in one form or another. And, um, you know, the path that we're on is is super exciting that, uh, you know, right now you can look around the country and, you know, we can we can kind of name them on our hand and you know, on our fingers. You know, there's a microgrid here. There's a project there. There's a project here. Well, you know, in 10, 10 or 15, 20 years from now, you're not going to be able to name these. You know, it's it, it, they're going to be everywhere. You know, I like to tell people that, uh, you know, Indonesia is made up of 17,000 islands. 17,000, you know, that's that's a micro, 17,000 microgrids at least right there because every island's gonna have their own. You know, if you start looking at that, you know, all the places around the world, that there's gonna be more microgrids out there than, you know, than the stars in the sky. I love it, Travis. Microgrids will be as ubiquitous as the stars in the sky. Well, when that happens, we will certainly talk about it here on Suncast and we're gonna have you back, Dr. Travis Simpkins, to talk more about value stacking, and how we go from microgrids as bespoke to microgrids as ubiquitous. Thank you so much for your time on Suncast today. I'm sure the audience is going to love it, and we look forward to having you back soon. It was a pleasure to be here today, Nico, and I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me. Nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.